Brothers and sisters, as we continue studying the book of Lamentations, the second lament in chapter 2, if you would turn there, it, it feels a bit like starting over again. It's not the nice, happy sequel to the first poem that we might expect. Instead of promising hope for the future, the second lament looks back at the destruction of Jerusalem again from a different angle. It shifts focus from the one being destroyed. That was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was being destroyed. And we, we heard from Lady Jerusalem in Lament chapter uh, 1 of Lamentations. And now we hear about the one doing the destruction, the Lord God. This second lament puts us before the Lord, sovereign over disaster and judgment. He who has the right to extend wrath or mercy, blessings or curses. And the poem ends not with answers. We don't get all the answers to all our questions. But it does end with a cry in the darkness. A cry to this sovereign God. And with Jerusalem, we're invited to cry out to this God. The God behind Jerusalem's destruction. Because the same God who brings disaster, is the same God, the only God, who can rescue us. If you would look with me at verse 1, whoops, we read there in verse 1 of Lamentations chapter 2, how the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud, he has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. We see in this opening verse that God's wrath covers the nation like a cloud. And it overshadows the whole poem. From the very first phrase, we're faced with God himself, the main actor in this drama of destruction and judgment. As one person memorably put it, the problem in Lamentations isn't the absence of God, it is His presence. The problem in Lamentations isn't that God is far away, but that He is near. And He's near in judgment. The Lord God is very much present and active in judging His people. He's the subject of the verbs in this lament. Yahweh is the one who cast down. He's the one who swallowed up, who tore down, who cut off, who burned, who killed, who devastated, and who destroyed, as we will see in the coming verses. And Zion or Jerusalem, is the one being acted upon, being judged. 
Her splendor, we read in verse 1, has, is gone. Her beauty has been thrown down. Thrown down from the highest place, from the heavens, down to earth. The footstool that God rejected is the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 1 is heavy enough. But the description of the Lord's acts of judgment continues in the next eight verses. In verses 2 through 9. So let's read those verses. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations or the dwellings of Jacob. In His wrath, He's broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them His right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe and he's killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah Mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like one in a garden. Laid in ruins his place of meeting. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar. Disowned his sanctuary. He's delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. The enemy raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as if it was the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament and they languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. And so let's pause there. The country villages, the fortified cities, the rulers, the armies, the beloved of the people, the the temple, the city walls, and the gates were all destroyed by Yahweh. All of Judah was brought down. No exceptions. With no pity or no mercy as it says in verse 2. God is depicted in verse 3 as a warrior letting arrows loose upon all of Judah. And he doesn't miss his mark. The army, Israel's might or horn, was cut down. The most beloved of the people, those who were delightful in our eyes, are dead. 
And the temple too was destroyed. You read in verses 5 and 6 that God ruined His holy sanctuary as though though it was a temporary garden shelter. You put it up for a while and then you take it down. Instead of the sound of Israel singing for joy at the festivals of God, now it's the enemy's shouts that echo in the temple courts. Everything. Destroy. The walls and gates as well. We can read about what happened. It's told in 2 Kings chapter 25. In 2 Kings 25, verses 9 and 10, it says that the Babylonian general and he burned the house of Yahweh, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every great house he burned with fire. And so the the armies of the Chaldeans tore down the walls around Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The poet asserts that these events recorded in the royal records that really happened, that they are the Lord's work. The Lord is the one behind the details of the siege of Jerusalem. He's like a demolition contractor assessing the city making a decision to destroy the city walls he he takes out his measuring tape verses 9 and 10 of lamentations chapter 2 and he makes some plans after he's done his measuring and he puts them into action and the result is the city's complete destruction What do you do when faced with something like this? Such complete devastation. Well, we have much to learn from the response given by the poet. We see in verses 9 through 12 that in response, the people mourn and the poet with them. We read beginning in verse 9, the second half of verse 9. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile or my heart is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city, they cry out to their mothers, where is bread and where is drink as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city and their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. 
That is an awful scene. It's one thing to talk of armies being destroyed. It's another thing to talk about little children dying. And Jeremiah is grieved to the point that he doesn't have any tears left. Verse 11. And he's sick to his stomach at the destruction. Just sick. And he's grieved from his heart or his spirit. That word literally is is the word liver, which was seen as the seat of your emotions. And so from the very heart, Jeremiah is just struck down with, with sadness. And no wonder you see these little children fainting with hunger. It's horrific. They're crying out for anything to nourish them. The innocent were suffering because of the sins of their parents. Derek Kidner comments the callous indifference of the the wanton selfish parents to the destiny of their offspring shows the depth of depravity to which the Judeans had sunk. When parents don't care for their own children, Terrible thing. And now the whole nation was reaping the awful consequences of abandoning the Lord. What we see here, folks, is the curses of the law. The curses that are recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, were being brought upon the people of God because they had forgotten their Lord. They had abandoned His ways and gave no thought to Him. It is not as though the Lord is being arbitrary. He's just not doing this for fun. He's doing it because of their sin. As we we saw already in chapter 1, Lady Jerusalem says, yeah, the Lord is in the right. But the destruction and judgment is indeed terrible. Brothers and sisters, as we think about the awful consequences of Israel's sin. Our nation isn't bound by the Mosaic Covenant with its blessings and curses. The nation of Israel was unique in that respect. But Canada will likewise experience God's judgment for her sins. Every nation and every person will give an account to the judge of all the earth. We'll receive what's due to us. And so this devastation comes a point of contact in our our own lives, our own country here on earth. We will stand before this sovereign God as well. So what hope is there for us? What hope is there for Canada? 
What hope did Jerusalem have? The poet continues. Verse 13. What can I say for you? To what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I could comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin or your wound is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The poet, he's really at a loss for words. What can he say? But he asks a question. He asks the right question. Who can heal such a great wound? And he doesn't get an answer here. That's one of the features of Lamentations. There's not many answers. But I want you to remember and consider the rest of the Word of God with me. I want to look at the promise of the prophet Isaiah generations before. Before Jerusalem was ever destroyed by the Babylonians. God had promised one who was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53 verse 5. Pierced for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities, our sins. Upon him was the chastisement, the discipline or the the punishment for our peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is the answer the word of God gives to the question of the poet. Who can heal us? Who on earth could bind up all the the mess that we've made? The Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was wounded in our place. Dying on a cross so that we could be healed so that we could be saved. That is the hope that the Scriptures offer us to that great question. A question we all need to come to a place to ask. Who can heal us? Who can help us? And the answer is the Lord God. This sovereign God who came Himself and died for sinners. While we were His enemies, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. That is our only hope. To trust in Him. And He will save. And He will redeem He will reconcile. But there are today, as there were in the days of Jeremiah, many false hopes being offered. And few hear the true gospel. 
In the days of Jeremiah, we read what what happened before the fall of Jerusalem. Lamentations 2, verse 14. Your prophets, the poet said, have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. They had a message. The prophet Jeremiah talks a lot about it. It was a message of one word, shalom, peace and prosperity was the word the false prophet spoke. Now, peace and prosperity is promised by God. But it must be found in him. It doesn't come apart from the Lord's ways. And so these prophets preached of peace and prosperity, but what they did was they led the people astray. They led them to their destruction. Instead of restoring their fortunes, turning things around, they made it worse. Because the people did not turn to God because they failed to expose the sin of the people. They didn't talk about sin. And there's a lot of people today that do the same. I promise peace. Talk about peace from God. Paint a pretty picture of the future. But failing to expose sin only covers up the consequences of sin. It does not deal with the heart of the matter. It does not offer a cure like our Lord who suffered and died for our sins. That was the message the people needed to hear. But they did not. And they did not listen to the few prophets who spoke to them of their sin. And so the tragic result of failing to to expose sin, failing to follow God to turn back to Him is revealed in the next verses. Verses 15 through 17. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and they wag their heads and laugh at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? Oh, the joy of all the earth. And they laugh. All your enemies rail against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. What's the truth? It was God who had allowed them. The enemies will have their day. They say, ah, we've longed for this day. Now we have it. Now we see it. Verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He is thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. The Lord had said through Jeremiah, 
in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse, four uh, verse 18. I have spoken, I have purposed, and I have not relented, he said. I will not turn back. That's what he had said. Now he had done what he said he would do. Folks, we better take God at his word when he says something. He means it. Beautiful Jerusalem has been devoured by her enemies. What do you do when disaster comes? What do you do when hope seems lost? What do you do when judgment hangs over Verses 18 through 19 offer us somewhere to turn. They offer us a glimmer of hope here. Verse 18, their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Your eyes, no respite. Arise. Cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Sometimes the only appropriate response is weeping and prayer. Weeping in prayer. If you're going through some great grief, some awful sorrow, and all you can do is weep, you're in good company. If that's all you can do when you think of the, the, the sin in our nation, the children who are being hurt by the sins of their parents, then you're in good company. You know, the prophets cried a lot. And our Lord Jesus Himself wept. He wept at the death of His friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. And He wept at the coming destruction of Jerusalem. In Luke 19, as he looked at the city, he knew what was coming because he knew they would not listen. They killed their own Messiah. And he wept. So weep then. And pray. When the darkness closes in around you, cry out to God. Don't wait. Don't wait until morning. Arise in the night, says the Lord. Right now. It's not too early or too late to come to Yahweh. The King of Kings, our Father. It's not too late to pour out your heart before Him, to let your prayers flow out from the well of your soul like water that gushes from the spring. 
You know what happens when you dam up a spring? It's not really good. Eventually, if the pressure builds up, it may explode. It's not good. It's not good for our souls when we don't turn to the Lord with our griefs and our sorrows and our sins. He wants you to cry out to Him. He rejoices when we come to Him at all hours with our heart's cry. The second lament closes with just such a cry to God. And it's not a pretty cry. It's not with, you know, Christianese words. It's a, it's a heart cry to God about all that is going on. Verses 20 to 22. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie young and old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day, Terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Wow. Calling God to look and see. It's a way of calling God to consider what's happening and to take action, God. It's not asking God to be a bystander looking through a peeping glass. Asking Him to be one who comes to the rescue. Help. The poet speaks of mothers eating their children. Holy men slaughtered in God's temple. Everyone, young and old, at the peak of their strength and those that are full of the wisdom of many, many years, all dead and gone, slaughtered by God. That's a scene worse than, than any house of horrors. It's not a jump scare that ends in a little laugh. Haha, <laughs> we're just joking here. This is a real slaughter that took place in real history. And the poet prays to this God. The God who invited terrors to the feast of, of the Lord's destruction of Jerusalem. Christian I have to ask you, can you trust this God? Even when He gives no answers for His actions. Even when He allows something horrible to happen. Will you still cry out to Him? And trust that He has a good purpose. 
in an awful, an awful judgment. Our God is sovereign, meaning that He has the right to determine what will and will not happen in this world. He is above all the heavens and the earth, supreme in authority. He can stop evildoers at any moment. Many times He does. But sometimes He chooses to use them for reasons that are His own. We naturally want to think God has nothing to do with calamity and disaster. But He has everything to do with such goings on. Cities and nations and leaders do not fall apart from His involvement. Now yes, God is not the one holding the sword. The Chaldean army who slaughtered all those people were responsible for every atrocious act of evil they committed. But God permitted it and decreed that it should happen for His purpose. He does not do evil. There is no evil in our sovereign God. But He works out all His purposes even through evil until He shall come to right every wrong. We shy away from the language of God bringing about disaster and destruction. But we should not be afraid of speaking of God as he speaks of himself. We read in his word, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 19.21 And sometimes his purpose is to judge. We read, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Psalm 135, verse 6. We read also, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isaiah 45, verse 7. He is the Lord who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ours is to trust that the judge of all the earth will do right and to turn to Him this sovereign God because He's the only one who can help us. The very one who has the power to judge and destroy is the only Savior. And He is, as we shall find out in coming passages and lamentations, He is ready to show mercy, to forgive and to save. He's always faithful to His people. 
Yahweh declares not only that He creates well-being and calamity in Isaiah 45, verse 7, but if we read a few verses later in verse 22 of Isaiah 45, God says, turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's no other Savior. So turn to me, says God, and I will save you. That's good news. We need a sovereign God who can work all things for our good, even the judgment of cities and nations. So when he's brought your soul down with the weight of sin and misery, Pour out your heart before Him. There's an open invitation to come to Him and do that. This sovereign God not only brings about disaster and judgment, He also chose to crush our Lord Jesus in our place. He didn't have to, but He willed it. So that we could by faith instead receive mercy and blessing. Praise God for that. For his sovereign will to save. To do that which is right and good. So when death surrounds you, trust in him who died to save sinners. When troubles come. Cry to the Sovereign Lord. For this God that brings disasters is the one who can save. Rejoice in that. Hold on to that. This Sovereign God who brings disaster is the one who can save to the uttermost all the way Completely.